Alright folks, welcome back to Green Pill, where we focus on making health simple for you, but more importantly, your family, your loved ones, and your community. Today's guest is Dr. Guy Lin. Dr. Lin received his medical degree from the University of California, San Francisco. From there, he went to do a general surgery internship and otolaryngology, so head neck surgery residency at Penn, University of Pennsylvania and thereafter completed a clinical fellowship in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Lin and I have a very personal story as he was my doctor when I came in complaining of uh, some ear, nose, and throat issues. And instead of routing me to surgery, he routed me towards a lifestyle adjustment, which changed my trajectory drastically. I mean, it's not enough to say that it, it fixed my ear, nose, and throat issues, which it did. It fixed my stomach issues, which I had had for 10, 15 years. A lot of my anxiety went away due to the interventions he recommended. And he profoundly influenced my current direction as a quantitative health and accountability coach. So, I mean, he probably needs no more introduction, but I think what comes out of this conversation is the link between your lifestyle, especially what you eat, and many, many, many other cascading effects in your body. Dr. Lin has a very unique way of telling that story without overcomplicating it, but keeping it super interesting. He also tells a personal anecdote of his brother being quite ill as he was a resident, and he gives you about 20 minutes of his own food, fitness, sleep, and lifestyle routine, something you rarely hear from doctors. Uh, this this is one of the best conversations I've had on this podcast by far, and I can't wait for you to listen to it. Without further ado, here's Dr. Guy Lin. All right. Dr. Guy Lin, welcome to Green Pill. First question, will you take the green pill? I'm going to take that green pill. All right. It's so not the blue pill, not the red pill. We're living in the healthy, simple reality. There you go. So listen, I, I think folks know from the intro how much you helped me. Um, I would love to hear kind of the pillars of health in your personal life outside of your outside of your clinical practice. What do you do every day? What do you do every week? What do you find important? Yeah, so I'm a um, practicing up, um, otolaryngologist on the Upper East Side, and I basically merge traditional surgical training with uh, an effort to bring in natural whole food plant-based living to lifestyle modification to a lot of the things that I treat. So I think that's where the intersection of what I do came into contact with you. And what I find cool is that um, I'm not coming at it with people knowing that that's what I do. They're coming with very common ailments that affect the ear, nose, and throat. So um, you, you can kind of touch on very practical day-to-day -day inflammatory conditions that affects people's lives without having to get at uh, more chronic and more long-standing disease that affects people later in life. And so you, when folks come to you like I did with an issue with the nose, you, you first 
Well, first, you sit down with them for quite some time, which I experienced, and I really appreciate from you. You gave me your time, and you listened, right? It wasn't a five-minute in and out. And so how do people respond when you come with the lifestyle medicine, and how do you introduce it um, without freaking them out in a way? Yeah, I mean, it's a two-way street. You read you read a person, see if they're open. Uh, you know, you start a discussion, like making small talk at a cocktail party, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see whether someone's turned off to something or turned on to it. And then you kind of explore it a little bit deeper. Um, it's not something that can be broached with everyone. And, you know, quite mm-hmm. frankly, people aren't necessarily seeing me with that intention in mind. And it's not offered every single time because it just wouldn't be practical. And that's the sad reality. Like you have to be open to that kind of discussion. And quite frankly, having that kind of discussion is a very long conversation. It's not a very one and done situation. So I think over the years, it's gotten easier for me just because I'm so comfortable with it. But Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, when I started it, it was terrifying. And when did you start it? You started, I guess you graduated in 04. Is that right? From... Mm -hmm. From, from well, I guess you finished your residency and then you did a, a, a fellowship at Sinai for surgery and then you started at ENT and allergy in, in your private practice in 07. Right, so right. when did you, I guess you must have been aware of this stuff for some time and been practicing in your own life. When did you start talking to patients about it? Yeah, this wasn't something that was brought about in my training at all. So okay. um, yeah, definitely a career path that was extremely traditional um, heavily surgical based and finally come out into private practice. And it's a new reality. You have to deal with real problems that don't have always the same solution. And you see a lot of the things that you were trained to do doesn't necessarily work. Hmm. And more apropos, you have situations that come up in your own life when your family's sick and that's where the rubber meets the road. And you see really where the kind of modern medicine gap really hits. So in my own experience, my brother who's nine years younger to me was really sick during my residency. He had um, ulcerative colitis. And during that phase, he ended up with, first of all, he ended up being extremely sick and almost died. So he was on what's called total parenteral nutrition, IV nutrition for about a month. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't eat, he couldn't do anything. Uh, he was just wasting away his life. Oh yeah. He was, he was wasting away in front of me. And I, there were nights I was spending in his hotel, in his hotel room, in his hospital room, I would be working really long hours and then go and sleep the night in his room. Yeah. It was just a mess. And, and he ended up losing his colon. Wow. And yeah. And it's one thing after another. And that started, I think for me and for him kind of this journey, like what, what the F is going on, right? Like you just feel like your anchor is gone. You're a- anyway, that, that was the beginning. And then I remember the second sort of catalytic moment for me was, um, shortly after my first child was born and, um, what happened? Was, yeah. yeah, I was just busy working really hard, coming out of residence. It was shortly after re- fellowship, yeah. Fellowship. And just not having a lot of energy and just having this foreboding sense that everything was going to be heading in the wrong way from a from a health standpoint. I just I just felt like a lot was not working out for me. It's just this premonition, you know. I was just having mm-hmm. a lot of reflux. I wasn't handling any of the meals I was eating. 
I never had a philosophy of health that was particularly based in anything, but what we were taught was basically you eat a balanced meal Mm -hmm. and things like heart disease were inevitable and you, you led an active life. And basically that was how you prevented disease, right? You ate a balanced diet. Okay. So fast forward, I'm seeing my brother, you know, wither away to nothing, end up losing his colon. And afterwards he ended up going into the hospital for frequent readmissions. I mean, his quality of life was completely down the drain. So yeah, it wasn't a a bounce up. It was a continued real struggle for him. Yeah. It wasn't like he had surgery and he was back in, in a working order. I mean, it was a psychological cripple at that point. And this was mid 2000s. You're going through residency at Penn, which for you was a huge grind, really tough program. You're sleeping nights in his hospital room. He finally gets away from death's door, but loses his colon and still struggling with his health for years. And and of course, psychologically, I'm sure he couldn't work, you know, by any means or socialize much. So that's extremely catalytic for you as a, as a MD at the time. And, and so this, so you were trying to figure out his life, right? And his doctors weren't able to figure out how to quote unquote fix him more or less, or were you working kind of in conjunction with them in some respects? I mean, this is not my area of expertise. Of so, course. You know, all I was yeah. able to do, interesting, he lived in Montreal at McGill okay. mm-hmm. and he had to pull out of his senior year of college. He missed his whole senior year wow. as a result of this. And he came all the way down to Penn simply because I had connections so he was like in my, not in my hands, but, but, it, you know, in a way, yes, it was me finding the right specialists and connecting him with the surgeons and the whole health system was like trying to keep him propped up and, you know, just surviving this ordeal. The surgeon, when he went in, was not planning necessarily on taking out his whole colon, but by the time he got in, his whole colon had, had died, essentially. It was completely necrosed. So they had to take the whole thing out. I mean, it, it was a really nightmarish health situation for him. He really withered away to nothing. He was a skeleton and he was on tons of medicines, including long-term steroids. And then the saddest part about it is had he had ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory bowel disease, Mm -hmm. had he had ulcerative colitis, then to some extent it would have been a done deal after the surgery, but he ended up having a diagnosis of Crohn's disease And so it wasn't over. It was areas of his intestine were inflamed and affected on an ongoing basis. So there was no hiding from the reality of what was going on. It was just uh, merciless. And it continued. Yeah. And and so, yeah, and it continued. And I guess the third thing that happened that really then sort of put me on the pathway was a, a close friend of mine who both of us shared a lot of athletic interests and health pursuits, he turned me on to a book called The China Study. And yeah, so I dug into the book and it just blew my mind. I could not believe the premises that were coming out of this book. In other words, um, what were they? Yeah. Yeah. For folks yeah, listening. So, yeah. So the China Study is written by um, a, a PhD, a, a doctor who's a PhD, so he's not an MD, mm-hmm. but he specializes in epidemiology. His name is um, T. Colin Campbell. That's his name. He's very well Colin known. Mm-hmm. And he studied the relationship between animal protein, or really animals versus plants, 
as it relates to the epidemiology of chronic disease, specifically cancers and heart disease. And what he found, he was funded by, uh, in conjunction, he's at Cornell, in conjunction with, I think, uh, Cambridge or Oxford, they studied in China, they were given access to a huge population in China, over 500 million uh, people, and they were able to study the relationships both in r- rural areas and urban areas. And this was at a time when China was uh, more rural than it is today. And they found the, the relationships between um, diet and uh, those diseases. And in other words, and, and basically the, the end result was the higher the amount of animal protein that was consumed the higher incidence of cancers that were found and also heart disease, which was just stunning finding. I mean, it's stunning to me to, to read about that. And so and that unexpected at the time, right? Completely when, unexpected because right. lived my whole life thinking that was what I needed to eat. Yeah. That balanced diet move a little bit and you can stave off heart disease. And that was kind of the going narrative um, probably when you were a kid and you had the food table and, in, in medic, medical school as well, I mean, how many nutrition classes did you have? I imagine not many, but zero. Yeah, if folks who don't see, he's putting up a big zero, zero goose egg on the screen. So on the scoreboard, that is. So the China study, when did that come out? Do you remember? And I know you read it probably early to 2010s. Uh, couldn't be Couldn't be in the 90s. It might, be later. it might have come out in the 90s. Yeah, it's, the it's 90s. Surpri- yeah what's surprising yeah. about this whole exploration is just how much information has been available and for how long. Mm-hmm. It's just stunning. You know, it, it actually at some point evoked a lot of anger. Like, how come nobody told me about this? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then when you, it's like the stages of denial until you finally come to a place of acceptance. It's probably where you and I kind of had met. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not. I don't feel the sort of burden of like fixing the whole world or that I have to be preachy. You know, it's not. It's mm-hmm. not. I'm not not good as a, it's not my skill set. And I think that, you know, if there's a connection made with a person and I feel like I want to explore something with them on this and kind of see how, how it goes, you know, that's the, maybe that's the sort of like parable with the green pill, red pill, you know, it's like, okay, let's do this together. And there's usually an opening in that conversation and it can lead to that. And, and so you're looking for that with every patient. And I think you see 30 or 40 a day from, from my knowledge, um, depending on the day. I think you have one day where you, you just do surgeries. But otherwise, you know, you have a busy practice in Upper East Side, Manhattan. And then yeah. you have five to 30 minutes with each patient. You know, Aaron, your um, PA, who's awesome, who I've, I've talked to over the years, schedules you out. And so you, you make some small talk. You ask people maybe how they're sleeping, how they're eating. Are they working out? What are they eating? And then they might just change the subject or they say, well, I kind of eat this way. And then you take the opening and kind of offer them the green pill or you keep them with the blue pill, you know, to yeah, extend the reference. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's right. like you're, you're just kind of probing with the conversation and you're seeing what people's reactions are. That's right. And would you say that's your superpower other than being preachy or where do you find your, your unique destiny and skill set when it comes to health? Because, you know, you became an MD, I imagine, for to help others in, in, in many respects, right? You know, it's funny. I, I do all this other stuff that I was really well trained for, but the thing that people are most appreciative of mm-hmm. is the very thing that you are coming to me today, you know, saying, which is I, I will never forget this moment where we discussed 
nutrition and its impact on my life. I've had people come to me on the street, not because I operated on them. I've even mm-hmm. had situations that was like life-saving surgeries, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe of a, of a family member, whatever. The thing that most impacts people is that simple conversation. I, I had one person, I remember it was right at, it was in the public theater after we saw a show and someone had seen the show. It was downtown. a patient of mine. Yeah, downtown. We came mm-hmm. out of the theater and he sees me and it was, it was as if I was paying him to do this. My wife is observing the interaction. He goes, you saved my life. Oh my and God. What I do? He goes, <laughs> I, I completely changed the way I ate. So, you know, the, the most, and, and what's authentic about it is it's the one time in medicine where you have to live the experience that the patient is also being asked to live, you know, whereas the rest of what I do I can prescribe something never mm-hmm. having experienced mm-hmm. it before, but this is the one thing that's truly authentic. You have to, you're being yourself because you're truly, you're living a certain lifestyle and you're sharing that lifestyle and you're sharing your beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it's, and if you're not passionate about it, it'll show because, you know, it's a conversation built completely on a belief and mm-hmm. and it and it's it's one of the most authentic experiences I think as a clinician that I can possibly have. And and you're you're noting on something nuanced where you're saying it's a belief, and and yet you know you cite some evidence with the China study, and I, I know you went out to Ohio when I met you, and you've you've done more reading and and work, and and we'll get to that on you know what you see as the papers and the the science behind it. But it's a belief, and and what do you mean by that? That it's a belief. Yeah. So. I, you know, when people classify type of style of eating, mm-hmm. I, I hate it when people sort of pin it into something. They are, are you vegan, right? Something like mm-hmm. that, like a, like mm-hmm. a label, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and again, T. Colin Campbell coined the term whole food plant-based eating, right? So the, the idea is at least that you're eating not processed junk, but you're mm-hmm. eating whole foods and you should primarily be eating plants. That's the premise, right? Mm-hmm. And so the okay. rest of the conversation will be based on like the evidence that exists on whole food plant-based eating. That That's essentially, you know, and so it's, it's a philosophy. It's more than just like here, eat lots of plants. There's a whole philosophy built within it, right? So there is a purpose to foods being delivered in their whole form. And, you know, there is a incredible amount of evidence that has been mounting for the success of plants primarily in the diet to restore health, not just to prevent illness, but also to Mm. reverse illness. And that, that was the reason I went out to Ohio. You mentioned you're referencing my visit with uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, who is one of two clinicians that showed that in uh, something like 300 patients, he was able to reverse heart disease using a whole food plant-based diet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have to and cite so, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's incredible work that, that these folks have done and to actually meet with him, see how he counsels patients mm-hmm. to, to be in a room where, but just it's to, to have people mentoring you, it gives you a lot of confidence in what we just said, which is a belief system. It's not just like belief, like right. religion, right. although it feels very much like it. It's evidence-based, but you have to be able to also communicate certain things. And you have to have confidence to sort of take that leap forward and say, okay, I'm doing this and this is what I feel. 
Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm doing this. And this is the evidence based on it. And this is what I'd like to share with you. It's a very hard leap forward. And it, it evolves like every time I'm having, you know, every, Mm -hmm. every day I'm in practice, I'm learning how to communicate better and better and reading people a little better. So it's like an art form. It's almost, it's a belief because you can't say for sure that it'll help people reverse the disease they have. And you can't say for sure that it'll prevent and, and really any, therapeutic or clinical approach is a belief, right? It's a belief. It's a forecast, right? This might work. Or if this doesn't work, we're going to try plan B and C. Yeah. Look, nothing is a guarantee, right? So for instance, uh, going back to the story of my brother, like once you've Mm -hmm. developed, you know, maybe too much of, of an expectation is built, right? So once you've developed an autoimmune disease, your immune system is almost irretrievably changed like it's targeting your own body it's you know it's it's maybe too hard to expect that you'll be ever normal again so Mm. you know sometimes we put too much uh, expectation that okay now i'm going to do this and the expectation is i'm going to be back to normal like Mm. sometimes life doesn't work that way right like there was a story of a a gi doctor and he developed a terminal cancer uh diagnosis okay Mm-hmm. And he met two people. He was very, he was in despair and he was at the side of the road and he, or so he was driving and at the side of the road were two people who were hitching a ride and he decided to take them hmm. and they were preaching a macrobiotic diet, which at the time was, that was the name for basically a whole food plant-based diet, right? Okay. It's, it's, it's trying to incorporate as much whole foods that are plant-based through the form of whole grains, etc. And he didn't expect to have a long lifespan, ended up beating his cancer and then becoming a a famous guru that started to talk about lifestyle and um, had a lot of people paying attention to what he was saying. And one day he decided to test the fates and go Mm -hmm. back to, yeah, go back to his former anyways. Well, he quickly developed the cancer back. Jesus. And then he wanted to show that he could now beat it again. But this, but this time when he went back to eating a whole food plant-based diet, he couldn't reverse it. There's limits to what you can accomplish. Like there's only so much damage that the body can take. Right. So going back, going back for a moment, um, you, you had your brother in the mid two thousands when you're going through residency, he comes from Toronto all the way down to Philly to essentially live or to, to stay in the hospital where you're coordinating his care in some respects as an individual and trying to find him the best specialist, trying to help him out. He ends up having his colon removed, psychologically different person, really struggling. Then, you know, early on into your career, you had a time where you didn't know what was next. You were really dealing with stress. So your personal health was impacted. And I think we could touch on that later. And then your third uh, light bulb moment was when you read the China study and and you started talking to patients about this and, um, and you get better every time, right. And in, in telling your story and showing your why and your, your real belief in this. And you say, you know, some people are open to kind of taking the green pill like I was, and, and we'll get into that story later. Cause it's quite incredible. I really just did a 90 degree turn one after talking to you when folks, let's say when folks are somewhat skeptical, they say, well, like, what do you mean? I, I eat healthy. And then how do you, how do you take somebody who's in the middle, not like me, who's a personal trainer who had, you know, who is highly actionable um, and easy? Okay, tell me to do this, coach. Great. I'm going to go try it. 
How do you take someone who's kind of in the middle? They're not closed off, but how do you counsel them? How did the gentleman in Ohio counsel his patients? And what did you learn there? Well, you know, I'm, I'm different than someone like that. Like he, here's a guy who probably deserves a Nobel Prize. People already read his stuff before going to his seminars. They know what he's presenting. It's There's no surprise there. I think what's interesting is when people come to see me, some people already know a little bit about, you know, if they go onto this website or they hear from word of mouth, like another patient will explain things. But for the most part, people have no idea that I'm whole food plant-based. It's not part of the advertising. It's not Mm -hmm. part of why they're coming to see me. So, you know, that's the most interesting patient. It's like, I already am healthy. I already lead a very healthy lifestyle, but here I am with this problem. Can you help me? And so we have a variety of avenues we can explore. And if that, if that exploration leads to, Hey, is, is there like a option to treat this that lays and lies in the realm of simplicity and logic and can lead to even more reward than just the very thing that we're going to be talking about and and see it from a 30,000 foot view instead of a very narrow view. That's the, I'm happy to go that way. I think that's, that's an ultimately the most rewarding option to take, but that is a very rare situation that a patient's going to go that way with me. Hmm. You know, that's maybe, uh, look, uh, also it's, it's over time that I've realized you don't need to build Rome in a day, right? So when you're mm-hmm. having a conversation with somebody, um, you know, there's, there, there's sometimes repetition, sometimes multiple visits. I, I'm not into trying to be confrontational. If someone be, believe, has a belief system that they're very strongly tied to, all right, that's a fair point. And there may be, you know, an argument to be made in terms of their belief system and willing to listen. I've yet to come across someone who's been able to show me evidence of something that has changed my mind about, and I'm willing to listen to that evidence because mm-hmm. I believe you, me came from a non-plant-based background and I love the taste of animal meat. I love, I would love not to have to, you know, be different than everybody surrounding me. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think that the, the beauty of the superpower as it will, that you referenced is If you want destiny to be in your hands, go get it. I don't believe that destiny is something that's ordained. I don't think that it's out of our hands to to the extent that we believe as a society. I think we have the ability to make our own luck. We can create our own luck by taking it in our own hands. Some people get very upset by that, you know? Because it it prescribes them choice, essentially. It doesn't say you've been fated to, you know be going down this chronic disease path. And in fact, you've done this to yourself, which is the essential message you're sending to people, right? Kind um, of. Yeah, kind but, of. but you're packaging it differently, right? And well, um, hopefully, I, I, you know, I, I choose to stay in, in the light, you know, to be positive and for sure. hopefully inspirational and not necessarily like in the beginning, it was very hard because I didn't understand like this has to be all or nothing because that's what hmm. the data shows. Well, life is more complicated than that. And it's impossible to run a study on every permutation you know, I think where the data really is convincing is when it comes to really important end organ disease, heart attack, stroke, cancer, the data is really damning. Like it's just pointing to the fact that we should all be aspiring to a hundred percent whole food plant-based diet and hearing 
quite frankly, a lot of the nonsense out there where people are pushing their view on things without referencing this is mm-hmm. is negligent. So that's that's my own personal thought on that. I think we can also you know, get into the question of verification on social media and, and what should be allowed to be claimed on you know, Section 230 under you know Congress and, and such. That maybe it might be more productive if you can uh, talk through the audience, you know, what evidence you've read and what's really convinced you so that folks can take that home with them and get going, staying with the mission of keeping health simple, which you've done a great job keeping it really simple and breaking yeah, sure. it down for folks. So, yeah, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's most important to connect with an individual, understand what is it they're trying to get out of life, if it will. Okay, so if, if it's someone who's a who's concerned about end stage of life, right? I, mean, I referenced the China study. That's a very thick book. It takes a long time to get through, but it's a tremendous resource. And I would point people to two people, to two researchers one is Caldwell Esselstyn, who I referenced before, and he studied heart disease and mm-hmm. reversing heart disease. But his contemporary, who simultaneously did a similar study, his name is Dean Ornish. And they're not mm-hmm. connected. They're two different clinicians. But what's interesting is like anything when it comes to an invention, right, you, you have two people stumbling upon something at the same exact moment. But what's cool about this situation is you're not really, you know, I don't believe strongly in idolizing or making anybody into a messiah, right? Like if there's, if there's independent verification through rigorous scientific study, it only strengthens the message, right? So Mm -hmm. these are definitely people that I would refer to as the, really at the apex of the, of the work that's being done, but there's hundreds, if not thousands of other smaller studies that can feed in that are feeder systems into the bigger narrative. So for instance, there is a woman's study looking at bone health out of UCSF, looking at tens of thousands of patients. I don't even remember the person that ran this study and they showed mm-hmm. that plant-based eating uh, confers a protective effect on bones and prevents uh, pathologic fractures as opposed to people who consume animal-based products. So, you know, this is not even looking at the same parameters. It's not looking at end of life, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's lots of different, it, it would be uh, beyond the scope of a conversation like this to reference all these little things. But thankfully I have people that uh, I've read that help crystallize it. So one person I would definitely uh, suggest people to look into is a, is a gentleman by the name of Michael Greger. And he's a clinician. Yeah. He's a clinician that wrote a great book called how not to die. (laughs) You won't forget that title. No. And uh, this is basically taking organ system by organ system in the human body and really backing everything up with scientific study. It's not his own, work. He's just basically passionate about uh, disseminating information about publicly uh, available information and just spelling any of the myths behind things and really kind of crystallizing for folks why whole food plant-based eating is so uh, important to understand from multiple narratives. Right. Um, So he's 
he's coming from he's citing quite a few studies he's in terms of multiple narratives what did you mean by that last piece and and agreed it's beyond the scope to get you know too deep in the weeds well if you if you i encourage anybody to read the book it's a it's a huge book and it takes a while to get through but for instance the cardiac system the pulmonary system the respiratory system, mm-hmm. the kidney system, the liver system, he goes through everything. He goes through the whole body and he kind of cuts into, you know, all the evidence out there. He was inspired personally, similarly because of uh, his grandmother who almost died of a heart attack and converted into plant-based eating. And it kind of opened his eyes to the power of what was available. And it kind of, de- it was his life mission to educate spread people. the word yeah, yeah and spread the world so there's definitely people doing great work there's another uh, person who is a clinician based in santa rosa and his name is uh, mcdougall and he has probably the longest ex- experience practicing medicine and disseminating whole food plant-based advice and what's interesting about him is he at a very early age had a stroke Hmm. And he had to come back from that and started to practice in Hawaii and started to see a multi-generational families. The oldest families came from more uh, plant-based cultures. And the sort of by the time the third generation rolls around in Hawaii, they're, you know, incredibly meat-based cultures. And so, you know, you can see it from the perspective of a clinician who's taking care of multiple generations and he became plant-based at some phase in his own career, again, triggered by his own exploration in terms of um, his own health and reclaiming his own health. And you, you don't get any clinicians, I think, with a longer experience than a gentleman like that. So, you know, there's a lot of work being done out there that's just top notch. Yeah. And, and so you stand on the shoulders of giants and, and you read and you check and you verify for yourself with your medical training. And you, you incur- and that's really ultimately what this podcast is about. So we can stand on the shoulders, uh, on your shoulders, and and trust your view and trust your um, discernment in in reading information and and deciding what's correct. And I think one one note for listeners who who might still even be skeptical, whether it be just based on their life experience or even some some biases here. It's not nowhere really, except if you go far to the right of the carnivore folks, is it argued that including more plants in your diet is a bad thing. So it's even if you don't go fully 100% plant-based, which I was for four years, and now I'm starting to incorporate some animal products back, uh, it doesn't mean that being 80% plant-based is not a, a marginal improvement from being 20%. And what's interesting about the Hawaiian uh, reference you made is that what Sonnenberg's lab has seen out of Stanford, um, they've gone around the world and studied what are called modern populations that still practice foraging. So folks who, like the Hamza in, uh, I believe they're in Tanzania or Tunisia and Africa, who are still foraging, uh, still hunting bow and arrow. And they're comparing that to Western diet. So USA, Great Britain, Western Europe, et cetera. And they're seeing the microbiome diversity goes down quite a bit, but what people also don't understand is what goes up is the bacteria which eat the gut wall of the microbiome. And so it's not just that the diversity in in your gut, which is not just your stomach, but your colon and, and throughout the mucosal layers of the body goes down and your ability to, to deal with inflammatory stressors goes 
down inductor and I'd really love to hear the mechanism from you on that, but it's also that other worse bacteria go up is my understanding. Um, and, and so there's quite a bit there. I mean, maybe if you don't mind, uh, for folks getting into a bit of the mechanism of if inflammation as you understand it and, and what folks can do, uh, if, if they're having the symptoms like I had. Yeah. I mean, just keep in mind, like the Hamza are known for being foragers, but they consume on average over a hundred grams of fiber per day. And just mm. so you know, to get that kind of quantity of fiber in a modern diet, I, I strive for people to get 40 grams of fiber in their diet or more. So that, you know, these folks are incredibly high consumers of whole food plants, whole foods that are plants. So I think it's a very different diet to live in a region where you're catching your own animals and mm -hmm. that, and that the land is free. And I don't think this exists anymore, but free of industrial toxins. And, um, I think when you have an industrialized food system and you've polluted the earth to the extent that we have, I think it's, it's a really hard comparison to make, uh, a foraging lifestyle to a modern lifestyle. And I think one of the consequences of today's day and age, and here I'm speaking more of my own beliefs, but I think that a lot of these industrial toxins are going to be finding their way into the fats of our animals. So to see, you know, mm -hmm. anybody who comes to me and, and worries about the arsenic in rice, mm -hmm. uh, especially non uh, white rice, like whole grain rice, which is a better you know, whole food plant to consume, they're correct. There is arsenic in rice because it soaks in water. That's how you grow rice, right? And so the water, if it's polluted, will find its way into the rice. But guess where those pollutants are going to concentrate? They're generally organopesticides, and those are going to find their way into the fat deposits, the repository of the animal. And that's where you're going to find most of these things. And so I think it's a it, Here's a tiny example of something. Um, yeah, please. And I think that if you look at it from the perspective of the microbiome, I don't think we're even starting to truly understand how um, how complicated the system is. But we basically have an ecologic system in our own guts that controls a lot of what makes us who we are. You know, it can control our mood. It is clearly uh, influencing things as complicated as, you know, as complicated as when a baby gets delivered to blood pressure, to regulating inflammation. So there's a lot going on in the microbiome that actually regulates, um, our health. And one thing that we clearly establish a link between is the more whole food plants that you eat, meaning the fiber, that's what the gut bacteria thrives on. So People who have a high whole food plant-based diet have a highly diverse microbiome. And it, mm -hmm. and just like making an investment, right? If you're only making a single investment, you won't really have the most, um, you won't own a portfolio that can withstand shocks from different directions. Like maybe in a certain environment, you know, if you, if you own a certain sector or a certain company, maybe 
certain circumstances, you'll thrive. But like anything else, you want to withstand different types of environments. And, you know, we don't want to have a very narrow bandwidth of microorganisms in our gut. We want to have a, a diversity of different organisms that allows us to weather the storm from many different directions. And so having a diverse array of organisms in our guts is what we should be striving for. Now, we know that in a heavy uh, meat-based uh, diet, we're going to narrow that profile down. So again, it, it goes back to very simple principles. Now, whether we're looking at it from one angle or another angle, you're, you're seeing the evidence really point to a consistent message. You want to eat a diversified diet consisting of as much whole foods that are plants as possible. And it's really the bottom line message that people should be um, reading to. And by the way, I highly encourage people to research for themselves. I don't want anybody taking my word mm -hmm. for any of this because this is way too complicated that anybody should be acting. I really don't believe in gurus. I think you should, you know, we live in a day and age where, and it's getting more and more dangerous with AI. You know, mm -hmm. you can, um, you can really get lost in the echo chamber out there, but I think everybody needs to start to educate themselves in terms of what for them seems to be fact and what's fiction. And, um, yeah, you do need good role models and you need people out there that you can get information, but it's just a nudge. You did the rest for yourself. I didn't do anything but point you in a direction. That's true. You know, you did. Yeah. You, you pointed me, you said, Hey, your, your nose dripping, uh, and your stomach hurting and your, your bloating and, um, your indigestion, it might be what you're eating. And I said, wait a minute, Dr. Owen, I'm a personal trainer, you know, yeah, I eat some pizza and some beer sometimes, but I, you know, I work out all the time, but I've had stomach issues in my whole life. He said, well, let me tell you gluten and dairy, um, and the meat that you're eating and the fried, you know, the, perhaps the oils you're eating might just be causing all these issues. So I recommend you, you try to eat less of that stuff, if not, and more vegetables essentially is what you said to me. And I happened yeah. to go vegan a month later for, for that factor and a few others and I mean, I never looked back. I have started incorporating some eggs and some meat back in, but still, I still keep highly plant-based. And um, maybe you can, you know, to that end, to someone like me out there. So one is having a div diverse colony of bacteria in your gut. And so could you touch on prebiotic and probiotic, uh, the difference there, and, and just some actionable tips folks could do to start eating more plants? And then... Anything else you, you go with people? I think you, it seems like you really start with nutrition. Do you, do you recommend any supplements for folks? Do you, do you touch on any other lifestyle factors? And, and how do you monitor folks? I mean, they come back and how do you keep them accountable? Yeah, you know, yeah. So yeah. I'm going to say I'm kind of the reverse of a guy like Peter Adia. I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah. Follow. I was yeah, curious yeah. if you were following. Yeah, Peter. yeah. yeah. I, I think he's great. I, I really love listening to him. I think he's very charismatic person but mm -hmm. from a philosophy standpoint i couldn't be more different yeah so, tell me yeah so you know i do not believe there are any biohacks out there I, th I think that the way to do this right is the simple way you're basically trying and there's a lot of things that you know don't get me wrong there's a lot of things that peter adia uh, espouses that i think you can learn from and i think it's great but i don't believe you can just hack your way into a healthy lifestyle. I think you have to really live it 
on a day-to-day basis. So for instance, I don't believe there's any supplements out there that are going to fill a void. I think that it's all in the fruits, the vegetables, the whole grains. Um, it's, it's in all the foods you're eating and you should be constantly striving to garner, uh, you referenced it, prebiotic, right? So not probiotic. You're not filling in a gap with mm. a particular bacteria that has to go through the mouth, the digestive enzymes, the high acidity of the stomach, and somehow find its way into implanting its way in the gut. You know, that's just from from what we're seeing right now, that's just not practical taking a, a probiotic and seeing the replenishment of a, a gap in that um, intestinal microflora. I think ultimately the bacteria that we have in our gut exists maybe in small quantities. If you feed certain types of foods, you're acting as a prebiotic. You're acting as a substrate by which you can allow those bacteria to replenish. So again, like if you're, let's say you're going to Yellowstone and you're Mm -hmm. looking at a devastated ecosystem, like the over growth of the uh, elk, and mm-hmm. the elimination of uh, the wolf and the, the decimation of certain trees in that habitat, right? You mm-hmm. start to restore the balance in that natural ecosystem and you start to see the diversity of life restored. I mean, that's on the macro level. And what's happening in terms of human disease, I believe, is on the micro level, the same type of thing happening at the gut level and happening with certain material systems. I think you have this ecosystem that you're replenishing by eating this way and so you don't see a shortcut you don't see there being a green pill other than of course listening to this amazing podcast and i think i think espousing that harsh reality and and you're you're really nuanced in how you deliver it you're not a harsh guy you're not a challenging people you're you're actually doing the great job as a evangelist of this of good good long-term health by telling people honestly how you how you live your life, your philosophy, and how it's worked for you, and and the stories that and data from from other patients and other folks that you've shared, including the guy coming up to you downtown Manhattan saying you saved my life, which is just an incredible story, especially when you didn't perform life saving surgery on him. Um, do you mind, folks, how granular you get with your own diet and your family's diet um, in terms of how you source your food, where you source it, how often you eat? I mean, I think folks would love to hear it. Sure, sure. I actually um, specifically borrowed, these are all concepts borrowed from others. So um, Mm -hmm. Michael Greger, called the last sustain, I think I have to give them particular credit, but every day I have to consume a few things, right? That has to get into the diet every day. And those things include beans. Okay. So at least a couple serving sizes of beans. But I think what you're asking is, can it be canned or can it be... Um, yeah, the delivery mechanism, but you're right. The delivery <laughs> mechanism. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. So yeah, it doesn't actually matter if you do the cooking yourself. Um, I generally don't have the patience or time to um, put beans and soak them overnight and then cook them the next day. I think they are much more delicious. And I think if you do that hats off to you. God bless you. That's great. I think anybody who puts extra time into stuff is doing things 
um, in a more purist way. But, you know, I think as long as you find a can of or a box of beans with no sodium added, make sure there's no preservatives, those beans are sufficient. I also love lentils because that's the one bean that you can cook and it's ready in about 20 minutes. Are you an so, instant pot guy or are you doing on the stove? What do you do? Yeah, I usually prepare lentils on just a regular skillet um, or sorry, a, a pot with, mm-hmm. with water and boil it. That's it. 20 uh, minutes. Huh? Yeah, okay. usually throw in some herbs to spice it up and you're good to go. So, so that, everyday that's beans. Re- yeah. Everyday beans. And then the other must is uh, a fistful size of steamed leafy greens. And so there's a lot of different things that can fit into that category. So broccoli, kale, arugula, um, asparagus, spinach. Yeah. And the list goes on and on. And so there's all kinds of things. um, Um, Just for not the skillet, but you'll put in a steamer attachment into your pot and and do two minutes or You'll do it in the microwave when you're in a pinch or how, yeah. How do you do it? I think how folks do we do would it? love to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the recipes that my wife and I, or my wife is mainly the, the cook here in our family. So I can't take credit for being <laughs> the one that prepares all this. You know, we're a family could, with though. two kids and yeah. And I like to you're exercise busy. and I like, and I'm busy. And so, you know, she, she does most of the cooking for us, but well, no, I spend a decent time in the kitchen too. Most of the recipes that we'll pick, should incorporate both a bean and a leafy, a steamed leafy green. So for instance, I had a vegetable curry dish, uh, during lunch today. And in that, uh, in that dish, there's some, uh, kale that's steamed. So it's already in there. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, um, that's a must that has to get in there every day. Uh, Steamed leafy greens. Yeah. yeah, Three fruit per day, at least three fruit per day. Uh, if you can, you want to try to get uh, berries every day, and you want berries to try to get day. citrus every day. So you're talking about citrus. some of the highest value uh, fruit on planet Earth, or some of the highest antioxidative uh, um, foods you could possibly consume. Mm-hmm. So you've got berries, you've got citrus, and orange, a fistful of other raspberries. Gotcha. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. What else okay. do you do? Yeah. So, yeah. So whole grains. Um, I don't think this is necessarily something that has to make it into the diet every day, but mm-hmm. it's usually going to fulfill some sort of like um, carbohydrate that that's starchy and, and achieve some sort of base to um, your meal. So, for instance, yesterday when I ate hummus, I had a whole grain pita with it. Mm-hmm. Um, today... I had noodles that were brown rice noodles. So that, that, that'll serve as a very easy, starchy, um, and you're getting a, 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 um, a whole food plant as the base of your meal. So that, I think that's a good way to go. It doesn't have to be something that you endeavored it absolutely get in there, but it finds it inevitably. And I think that things like corn, and rice and potatoes. These are staple foods that basically power most of the globe and mm-hmm. are incredibly healthy foods that you can pretty much find anywhere. Yeah. I like the reference to, you know, worldwide consumption on each of those you know commodities. Cause it, it yeah. is true. It is true. Yeah. Rice and potatoes. Cool. So you've got leafy greens, uh, beans, three fruit, typically some whole grains, Any, anything, anything else that's a must for you on a daily basis? 
for your product. Yeah, try to have a um, spice rack that is more than just salt, pepper, and that's it, right? So uh, breakfast time is the time to bring out the cinnamon. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the evening, you might have turmeric, paprika, um, cayenne peppers. You you just want to basically create a little punch to your foods through your spice rack. Having um, an herb garden is Mm. like a great, one of the beautiful things about herbs is they are plants that have over a long period of time not been tampered with because they contain so much damn flavor. So, (laughs) uh, you know, and they're easy to grow and they pack a punch in terms of the amount of antioxidative power in your food. So, you know, thyme is something that we always have growing in the summertime, basil is uh, something that complements tomatoes great. So you want to be seasonal. So you're hitting your autumn, you're starting to eat squashes and your root vegetables. And your summertime, you're hitting your, you know, at this time of year, sort of end of spring, you're hitting your cherries. And uh, I know I'm digressing because that's not. No, no, no. It's herbs. like people want to know this. I'm telling you. This yeah, is, yeah, yeah. You want to is... try to, to some degree, uh, be in touch with the natural order of things, not because it's necessarily based on any evidence or rooted in any other way, then I think it's just a lovely thing to be connected to your local farms and know what's growing, know, you know, what grows in your own garden. If you were to grow it at a particular time of year, um, Mm -hmm. rosemary is another, uh, uh, common oregano is a common herb that we'll use and stuff. These are things, cilantro is a, a really mm. nice one to have available. One warning sign that I'll send out to folks is don't fall in love with your avocados and your. Just going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, oils are not a whole food plant. Okay. So <laughs> the hardest trend, yeah, the hardest transition for me was not cooking with oil that was a very hard one to give up um yeah what do you do instead that's that's a really tough one and uh, i was just going to ask you about it so yeah it's very challenging when you want to make a good pasta pomodoro there is Mm -hmm. no substitute for having some oil in there but (laughs) for the most part i I think that we overplay how flavorful oil is oil allows you to fry if ever cooking with oil what you're doing is frying you are literally caramelizing whatever yeah. So, you know, uh, I don't, I saute my food. I don't fry it. Well, you, you are essentially, you know, <laughs> creating a type of frying situation. What you don't want to do is create a situation where you're throwing the oil or the fat back in, you know, if you're eating whole food plant-based, mm-hmm. generally the fat that you're consuming should range somewhere between 10, 20% fat content. When mm-hmm. you're throwing oil back in your a you're throwing in a food that's devoid of any nutrition because you've stripped away any of the rest of the plant that actually yep. contained the healthfulness of that substance. And you're also boosting that fat content. So avocado is heavy in triglycerides and in oils. And so is your tropical, your tropical vegetables like um, coconuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not saying you can't eat those things, but what I do observe a lot of times is the minute People shift to eating more plants. You see, boom, avocados all the time. <laughs> you peanut butter all the time. So nut butters, you got to be careful with. These are things that I think you want to eat sparingly, but you don't want to 
necessarily overconsume them. I do recommend those things for folks who are very skinny. So hmm. it does come up. People are very concerned about losing too much muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sarcopenia, which is the medical term for losing muscle mass, it is a thing as you get older. Hmm. And I am a huge, huge uh, believer that, you know, as, and this is something I've been listening to Dr. Adia as of late. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be building your muscle mass early in life so that as you start to lose that muscle mass, you have the res- reserves to stay strong enough to endure the sort of natural decline that occurs with time. But that's, you know, that's just doing things that require activity, exertion. But if someone is concerned that eating plant-based is going to lead to lack of muscle activity, well, my comment to that is you're just not working out hard enough. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think people have aesthetic concerns and that just goes to what the baseline actually is in our, in our culture, maybe of seeing bodybuilders and, and the like, where you would look at, if you go into the Hamza people or in Amazon rainforest and you look at pictures of, you know, folks that have been taken there by anthropologists and ethnographers, they're not looking like Arnold. Right. So I think that's another form of body dysmorphia. And I think you're re- you're really granular on the coconut oil and oils generally peanut butter because it's not a plant right so it doesn't come with the fiber it doesn't come with with the the break the prebiotic fibers that go down to your colon and your small intestine so you stay away more or less from the nut butters and the avocado oils and the coconut mana and etc i mean you might have it sometimes um Okay. And then if you're cooking on the skillet, just to get granular with you one more time, because I'm sure someone out there is like, well, how does he, how does he cook his, you know, how does he steam his kale or how does he cook his lentils if there's no oil? So what's your answer? You're more of a boiler and a steamer than a fryer, right? That's the answer. It has to be. Yeah. I mean, the thing is you start to learn what order to put things in. So if you're cooking onions or mushrooms, there's essential oils inside of those things. So you can start the skillet process for certain things. And by the time you get to your vegetables that contain a lot of water content, and if you cook a lot, you're going to know which things contain a lot of water mm-hmm. and which don't. By the time you throw the things with a lot of water in it, those things are going to burn very easy. So mm-hmm. you throw those things last, right? So you're like leafy greens. Those are going to, once the water evaporates, boom, it's, it's going to burn right away Mm -hmm. so something like a mushroom or an onion you can as long as you're paying attention you can saute that meaning in in water or just nothing you can and it'll release its essential oils and you're going to be able to caramelize it without even adding any oil to it because it already has it in there and then what's really important i think some vegetable stock in your pantry to flavor Mm -hmm. things as you cook it so you're going to end up with a lot of uh, stews or sauces. One of my favorite quick and dirty like meals for the family is a basil pesto that my daughter taught me, actually. She's fantastic in the kitchen. So she showed me a recipe that consists of pine nuts thrown into a blender with a ton of basil. So in the summer, we have a lot of basil grown and mm-hmm. we throw the basil in there and some nutritional yeast and some salt and lemon uh, oh, man. juice. And you just, you just literally throw it in the, in the Cuisinart and Mm -hmm. you steam up some, you know, whole grain noodles and you got a 15 minute meal. That's just divine. 
Wow, I am getting hungry. That's and there's no <laughs> no frying, no sautéing, no all fresh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the you're, only you know, knock, the, yeah. the only knock on that is you know I'm grinding down some pine nuts. You know, so again, I'm like cognizant in my mind of not overdoing a meal like that, right? I'm not eating that every day. I'm mm. I'm varying up what I'm eating and making sure I'm not doing ground nuts in my diet every single day. But I think it's a very healthy way to eat. Yeah. So in a way, you're almost um, paleo without the grains. I, I don't want to put labels. You're really eating as if a caveman would eat foraging, right? You're foraging, so you're not using the Cuisinart for every meal because that wouldn't be realistic. So you're trying to return in a way, and I, I think it's getting a little late, and so I'm probably not summarizing as well as I'd like, but you're you're trying to masticate your food. You're trying to chew your food and let it go down the right way. You're not You're not taking any modern shortcuts in a way. I think is that fair? Yeah, I, I believe that you're in this like you don't have to go out and grow everything. You don't have to go out and do everything the hard way. Mm-hmm. But you are trying to espouse this idea of foraging in a modern uh, fashion, right? You're you're a modern day forager trying to find a large diversity of plants that you enjoy in a combination of different ways that incorporates mm-hmm. I think the healthiest foods on planet Earth. And so, for instance, flaxseed is something that I think needs to get into that diet, not necessarily every day, but because of certain health benefits that it confers, you know, you want to find a way to get it in there at least once, twice a week. Mm-hmm. You know? You're not, yeah, you're not taking supplements. And I, I don't want to keep you too long. I guess no, I would it's just. okay. But I want to make a word about flaxseed. It's, it's, yeah, the, it's the concern that people have. And by the way, we try to reduce everything to a common element, right? So I'm about to do that, right? We talk about the omega-3 fatty acids in our foods mm-hmm. and that omega-3 fatty acids are a particularly healthful type of fatty acid to have in the diet because it's anti-inflammatory. That's essentially the premise behind it. Well, flaxseed has a ton of omega-3 fatty acids. Things like chia, are uh, stuffed with uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Seaweed is your original source of a lot of the omega-3 fatty acids. So, you know, through your foods, if you can incorporate these types of things throughout the diet, I mean, the, the problem is there is not going to be just eight things you're going to eat, and that's mm-hmm. it. The whole, the whole premise is make it as diverse as possible and explore that wide range of opportunities. Truly be a forager, and today's foraging man is way different than the paleo era. I can easily access foods from Asia, South America. You know what I mean? It's gotten so easy to get foods that uh, one day I can eat an acai bowl and the next moment I can have seaweed at a Japanese restaurant, right? So it's a strange type of forager, but I'm not confined, I think, to just the local ingredients, even though I do espouse to being seasonal and staying local to some degree. You know, I think we can break out of that mold to some degree too. Yeah, that's, you you hit the nail on the head with the seasonal versus sourcing food from Asia, because I think it's always a question for for folks who, who talk about eating locally and eating seasonally. And for you, it's staying connected to the land, to the process and understanding your food. And of course, probably there's something better about some some dirt that's near you uh you being connected to that to those microbes that's just my you know personal view um and and you're not against sourcing a diversity of food from abroad and in fact if you look at 
some human history after you know the agricultural era started, which was what Egypt, five thousand BC. There was interaction with other groups, um, so so it's not maybe not not incorrect to to say that. And and you've you've had really good blood markers, I'm sure, and you get your blood tested. Is there any other tests you um, do to keep track of your health? And you know, in that sense, I know you listen to Atia quite a bit too, so he talks about those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I cannot further distinguish myself from that kind of strategy. So. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, you know, I think, look, I think if you have a history in the family of high cholesterol or something you want to track, I don't think there's any problems with doing any of this testing. But I do think the premise of, for instance, screening for certain diseases is unnecessary. Well, listen, I think that, first of all, let me just as a disclaimer say, follow your doctor's advice. If if your doctor feels that, there is something conferring upon you risk, um, then you should follow your doctor's advice. But I will give you, for instance, a tidbit. If your total cholesterol level is under 150, there's a target everybody should keep in mind, then the world literature suggests you will never need to worry about developing a heart attack because that's what the world literature shows that under a total cholesterol level of 150, it is very unlikely that you will have the types of scenarios that lead to the plaque formation and risk factors to develop heart disease and stroke. So I think in many ways we can simplify rather than complicate our, our health. I think we can reduce the need for some screening tests and lab work when we adhere to a, a healthy plant-based diet. Uh, you know, I think that the, what we're all striving for is a more natural way to live. And I, I really don't think you need to constantly be testing and retesting if you're doing the right thing. If you're taking away the inflammation that the body can heal itself on, on its own, let me say it a different way. If, if you're allowing the body to get out of its own way, you wouldn't necessarily need to constantly test and retest to know that that's going on. So I think as long as you're holding true to those, to that paradigm, and I think where testing becomes more important is if you just can't do that, right? So I think mm-hmm. that if you can't be whole food plant-based and you can't trust in this process, then you will need to get calcium scores mm-hmm. to see what your heart attack risk is. You will have to get screening testing done to make sure you don't develop cancers in all kinds of the body parts of the body. I, w- I want to reference that 90% of mor- mortality above 60 is due to two diseases, right? Cardiovascular disease broadly and cancers broadly. And so most of our healthcare spending is based on, you know, screening for these types of diseases. And I think that if we can, adhere to a lot of what's already out there, you'll start to realize that uh, we're creating a, we're feeding in a whole industry because we're not doing the right thing from a lifestyle standpoint. You couldn't say it better. And I think folks will take that home from this podcast that keep it simple, focus on getting more whole, so whole plant-based foods into your diet, as many as you can, a, a diversity of them, a plethora so not eight, but 20, if you can. And, and Dr. Lin shared some of his personal 
eating habits and from his family, which are really helpful. And I think that's why folks listen to things like this. So they get these nuggets to take away. And, and we've really got the view of why you became so interested in lifestyle medicine and how you how you talked about it with your patients like me who are super motivated and easy to convince and other folks who are less so. And I think folks can take away those conversational strategies for, for their parents and for their siblings and for their spouses who maybe aren't eating enough plants and, and frankly, are probably just eating too much junk otherwise and, and take away some of Dr. Lin's uh, soft, nuanced, you know, small talk approach to changing people's minds rather than saying, hey, I'm worried about you. You need to go to the doctor. So Dr. Lin, you went from personal to patients, back to personal and, and all the way to the global and macro level. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it so much. You did change my life and I always refer people to you and I always tell people about you. So when I was coming up with this podcast, I threw your name on the list. And I said, you know what? I need to give him a call. So one day I, I did and you said, yeah. And then, so here we are and I'm, I'm psyched for people to hear this. And again, thank you so much. I'll have to come say hi in New York uh, when I'm there. Is there anything thank you want you, to Alex. add? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, is there anything you want to add and at the end and where can people find you? Um, and, and I'll also link to all that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, thanks again, Alex. It's um, an honor to be recognized. You know, mo most of the time when we do good work, you don't hear from the person again. So I appreciate <laughs> you reaching out and it is inspiring <laughs> and gives me a shot in the arm for what I do. So, you know, it's not always rainbows and unicorns every day. So it's really nice to see that I had a positive impact. And um, yeah, I, I think keep doing what you're doing. Keep asking these questions. And um, I think the journey for everybody has its own pace and its own reality. And if, if you want to reach out to me, um, the easiest place to find me is through my uh, practice. It's ENT and allergy. And the my, my full name, Guy, G-U-I, Lynn, L-I-N, you can look me up through those two keywords. And that's it. I, I really appreciate the time. Good luck to you. Perfect. Thank you. All right, folks, thank you for listening to my episode with Dr. Guy Lin. I hope you got a lot out of it, both for your personal habits, how you eat, how you treat your body, and you have a better understanding of your physiology and how it works. Please share this with anyone who has doubts about the power of food as medicine. And really, um, if you made it this far, I really appreciate you listening and your rating, your subscription, your review on Apple, Spotify, YouTube is all really helpful uh, to help me get this message out to more folks. More importantly, though, if you can share this with somebody you love, somebody who might benefit from it, share it on social, that really helps me get the word out. All right. Until next time, this is Alex Shinkarovsky on Green Pill.